everybody to episode 12 of the Wine Insiders podcast. Our insiders are back, including Lori from Outshinery. Hi, everyone. Nick from Wine Owners. Hi. Jonathan from Bottle Books. Hello. And Seb from Trolley. Good morning. I kind of, I feel like I need to have some sort of a clown. Weep, weep. Today, we're going to cover a couple of new startups in the wine tech um, uh, field that happen to have female founders, which is uh, quite interesting. Um, and especially since we have Lori on board here, um, we want to get some insights into what that experience is like um, and to cover those technologies to see if those are interesting and also maybe talk a little bit about the champagne battle between Russia and France. Laurie, uh, um, as of 2018, 10% of California's producers had a woman winemaker, 4% were owned by women, um, and 6.6% uh, of people running Fortune 500 companies are women, um, and of the 20% of global startups raising money in 2019, 20% had a female founder. Could you tell us a little bit about what it's like being a woman in a very male-dominated thing? Are there advantages? Are there disadvantages? What has been tough? What's it really like? It, it's been interesting. Like First and foremost, I, I became a, a founder, an entrepreneur, a little bit, not by mistake, but I had an idea and an itch. And I just like started open like a website and then it just kind of like snowballed from there. So I never really went through the motion of like, I want to be, an entrepreneur and like let's think of an idea and a product market fit and I just kind of like fell into it um, and for the longest time I was looking to fail or at the very least to pivot you know like you hear that in the world of startup like you have an idea like and then suddenly like it changes like we all, all heard of the story like Instagram and Slack and so on uh, still hasn't happened. Um, it's funny I go back and forth I have uh, I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and it is because it is not far from both Seattle, like think about like three hour drive and San Francisco, think uh, less than three hour flight all in the same time zone. Even though it's a Canadian pace and it's a bit like a Canadian attitude, which is like a bit less go-go and money, money, everything. It still has a bit of a Silicon tech, um, tech feel and there's a very nice, um, support, community support for startup um, and for founders in particular. I would say that my own challenge that I've seen is there's almost a division. Like, um, you know, I'm part of like um, startup, um, I wouldn't say incubators, but just kind of like they call themselves like universities, which is also not right if you ask me, but just kind of like classes support on how to do uh, sales when you're like selling software and something like that. And this is, you know, more often than not, I'm still the only woman in there or just maybe there's two and everybody else is men. That, by the way, more often than not, really awesome people that just happen to be to be men. And then I'm also part of company like association like Forum Women Entrepreneur here in Canada, um, which is on purpose, you know, like giving you mentors to like work on like the, maybe the skills or the aptitudes that weren't developed through your um childhood uh, often uh, women were girls before and we were supposed to be the good girl you know the one that just doesn't create waves that only speaks when her arm is raised and the teacher calls her out things like that that in the world of 
raising money or like building things just makes everything like a slug or more difficult. And this, what I love the community there, and I really appreciate the support and have fantastic mentors. I find it's a bit more challenging because more often than not, it is absolutely not tech related because it's still this division. There's more and more women founder and like incredibly doing incredible business, but a lot of it is um, women products related, which we need, but personally, I'm not interested in doing baby bum cream, you know, I'm not interested in doing, uh, you know, new um, hygienic products or even like a lot of food products, things like that. And I find sometimes it's a gap and a bit of frustration uh, on my side. It's just like, it almost feels like there's a category of also women companies that that women fund and I get frustrated. Often it's not a lot of tech. So I'm super excited about like the, the companies we're going to be talking afterwards with the panelists because they happen to be women and they are like deep, deep in technology, leveraging artificial intelligence and so much more. And that, that gets me excited. At the end of the day, um, I define myself as a founder that happened to be a woman. Like, you know, like it's just like, um, Sometimes I would like to have the advantages and sometimes it's also like that does not define me. Like I'm creating a company and I have a staff that is eclectic, a team that is awesome. And yeah, I just happen to be a woman and that's, yeah. So it's, it's just like a hate love, um, but it is what it is. I can't change my gender, right? <laughs> well. Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could. We, we, we're, so, we're seeing a lot of activity down that that path as well uh, and look i think uh, i think there's one point here to be made there is we are talking about female founders from a tech standpoint tech startup standpoint <clears throat> the wine industry also fairly specifically is grappling with uh, gender inequity uh, you're looking at usually less than 10 percent in most countries are female driven or female orientated uh, so this is not just tech. This is also not just wine. It's a fairly broad problem. Uh, I was reading an article, an article a couple of uh, months ago, which basically highlighted how publicly listed companies who have females on their board actually do better. Uh, and so we definitely do need to get more females involved, right? Uh, now, the question back to you, Laurie, uh, is... Uh, I was talking to a female um, winemaker uh, based out of Australia uh, who won prizes uh, with her wines out of the UK uh, and she actually declined uh, the prizes uh, because she won the best female winemaker mm -hmm. as opposed to the best winemaker. Yeah. Uh, do we should we really try and have a fast track, a, a separate category? Should we try and divide and try and help women? I'd like highlight themselves, spotlight on themselves by having a different category. Because statistically speaking, if you've got ten percent of female winemakers, you're bound to have more male wines being created. So it's going to be a lot harder for female to differentiate. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing in your opinion? Oh. Had, had debates around wine with <laughs> other girlfriends like you know it's not easy I would always remember like years ago even I can't remember if it was Natalie Portman or something like that but there was like the the Hollywood gala and then there was the Hollywood female gala and she started a speech is like oh you know the other one is just called Hollywood like you know like it's not called Hollywood male gala like you know like it's just um, correct 
we even see that as well, you know, in the world of like fake tech company, like WeWork versus uh, The Wing, which The Wing was a co-working space only for women. And I just like, to me, I don't think it moves the needle enough because it's, because it's not dissociating. Like the reality is like men are here and contributing as well. So like, it's just like, but at the same time, I'm also like, okay, I'm a female founder, but full disclosure, I'm white. Uh, I am educated. I come from France. I have a dual nationality. Like I come to the disadvantage, but I have all the other advantages possible. So like, I think even I, as a female founder, I'm, you know, in a way like at the top choice by luck of how I was born and educated. So it's it's back and forth. Um, I think just the emphasis on just like the female, even when you make me start female, it's just like, am I a female, am I a woman? Or just like, like, you know, like like, like even that, like female is almost sounds like, um, um, I almost have a problem with that word. Um, uh, It's, um, yeah, it's it's really really challenging. I don't have the solution, but I also know it personally drives me uh, gives me drive it's just because I, I almost want to do to you know to 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 bust those cliche as well so like it's a love-hate relationship for me personally I, that being said I don't do sleep over it like this is like I said like I don't define myself as a business you know like female owned or something but if the Canadian government give like extra like grant money for female founder I'm like well you know I pay my taxes and this is put aside for female founders so maybe <laughs> But even that, I, I question probably, I myself. I could probably change my name and, and, and go for it. <laughs> yeah, no easy answer. No easy answer there. Yeah, look, it's, not, it's it definitely not straightforward. It's definitely mm-hmm. not straightforward. And, and likewise, uh, there is a, uh, a company I'm working with uh, based out of California. Uh, they're trying uh, new packaging and they wanted to have a minority uh, winemaker as well to try a new style, right? Or So either a black winemaker or brown mm. winemaker, a female winemaker, <clears throat> and they struggled to find one. Yep. They couldn't hire one because there's not enough, right? Uh, look, it's a very, very, very tricky problem. Um, and I also do think that while, um, look, we're, we're, we're equal opportunities, but we're physically thinking and feeling things differently. Boys are not educated to be emotionally intelligent, genuinely mm-hmm. speaking. I'm just generalizing. Um, <clears throat> And as a result, we're seeing businesses and startups being created with a very different eye over similar problems, right? Mm. Guys tend to be rational. Guys tend to be, you know, a bit more structured and organized. Yeah, um, I would, yeah, like that's, that's probably true. And I think women can have that more. I think something that I've been discovering in the last few months, like reading about it and just like, honestly, like even sharing articles with my mom, um, I'll always be remembered. So I always, you know, thankfully was top of class, but I always had like my teacher and I would be reprimanded like, oh, speaks too much. Like, and, and too, like, and, okay, I love talking, but like too present. Like just speak, and I'm like, in retrospect, would I have been a boy? Would this have been highlighted on my own report card? I'm, I'm not sure. Like I was literally being like, don't, don't take that much space, Laurie. Don't take that much space. And, and I think it's like very sneaky, but I think it kind of like ripples and in your grown-up life you know like you know Sheryl Sandberg like lover hater like lately mostly hater but like you know like leaning in and sitting at the table and raising vo- your voice taking like taking space speaking out it's I, I can rationalize that it, it makes a lot of sense if you don't ask a question nobody can answer but at the same time we were kind of conditioned to like 
don't do weight. Like it's something that I've been realizing yeah. lately and I'm trying to contradict, uh, not contradict, but be aware that and like saying sorry all the time. Now I'm really conscious if I say sorry, it's because I did something wrong, not because I want to appear yeah. nice. And, and that's, that's, that's a repercussion of having a, a Canadian passport, right? Oops, you you French, literally yeah. just learn to say <laughs> sorry Canadian, every yeah. fucking, every time you have a sentence. Yeah, yeah. So one of the um, one of the companies that uh, Lori uh, alluded to is Tastry, who came on our radar, female founder or not, um, just so happens that uh, Katrina Alexson um, founded Tastry. Um, also, she has a technical mind and she came up with a lot of the tech behind it, it seems. Um, and Tastry uses artificial intelligence to analyze tens of thousands of wines a year generating vast streams of data to help winemakers and retailers produce and target their products more effectively. Um, I know that um, the founders have looked into this a little bit. Um, what do we think about this technology? Um, they're, they're, they've been using it in the US for a bit. Now they're trying to go more global, bringing it to Europe. Um, I don't know, Nick, you had some, some thoughts. You were able to look into it a little bit, um, uh, thought of some other companies doing similar things. Um, yeah, what do you see so, there? So, so coincidentally, I was recently introduced to a company called Wine Ring, uh, also using artificial intelligence in order to try and essentially provide personalized uh, recommendations. Um, so, you know, and I th and uh, also uh, run by a female founder, Pam Dillon, um, and. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think, um, you know, being able to evaluate a significant amount of data and seeing how effective or let's say useful this is, I think is, is probably, um, is probably key to it. Um, and, you know, and I think it's interesting that you've got two businesses using AI, taking quite different approaches, one taking very much a component-based approach at a very elemental level, another one taking an experiential approach involving um, masters of wine, involving um, a variety of um, market participants. Um, so Wine Ring has patented technology, for example, I guess Tastry probably does as, as well. Um, I can see that there's a really great application here within what I'd kind of call the sort of um, mainstream premium market, the sort of, you know, the, the, the wine, you know, wine in the, in the spectrum maybe of perhaps um, 10 to 20 bucks a bottle or something like that, um, where it's, it's where people really just want to engage at a fairly, broad level with are these the sorts of characteristics of wine that I think that I might enjoy. I think it gets a little bit trickier beyond that point. I think it's tricky, for example, to analyze chemical components and determine that a wine is going to have a certain set of characteristics as a consequence of that. I think Bordeaux 2020 is actually a really interesting example of that where you've got wines with incredibly high pH values, suggesting extremely low acidity. And yet the human experience in some of those wines feels like those wines are fresh. 
but they're not fresh as a result of underlying acidity. They're fresh as a result of other perceptions, or perhaps as a result of winemaking. You know, what some of this stuff isn't necessarily going to do is, is, is pull apart those wines that are a whole bunch with those wines that are made without any of the stems at all and just use um, just made using whole berries so so I think you know one needs to be cautious I think I do see a increasing application for this stuff in b2b to c so I, I really see these tools and particularly where some AI derived insights are then validated by other inputs such as MW input and um, using that as a um, recommendation engine, replacing the very um, um, basic tools that exist on, on wine e-commerce today with something that's much more driven by um, um, your, your preferences, your, your purchasing history, um, and all of the other kind of factors that feed into these AI models. So I, I really like the idea of, of B to B to C because I see um, the wine industry engaging with ways in which to make wine easier, more accessible, um, uh, easier to upsell, uh, easier to make work and cross sell in digital, in digital um, settings. Um, so I think, I think, I think that's, uh, I, I think that's quite exciting. Jonathan, where are we um, overall in terms of the wine world using uh, data, using a lot of data, um, analyzing it, using AI? Um, is anybody, uh, are we still having trouble just collecting and getting this data? Um, anybody using this effectively? Um, you know, what's your viewpoint um, exchanging product data around the world? I think there is definitely um, still plenty of challenges around um, uh, collecting product data, which we are happy to uh, happy to, to try and address. Um, I would echo. I think I would echo um, Nick's sentiments on the recommendation side. It's a very uh, competitive market. Everybody is trying to get that half percent better recommendation to get a bit more revenue. But I think what would what I found very cool about Tastry is the um, is the other side of their business, which is uh, doing the tank analysis to help the wineries blend their wine. Um, and this I I like it kind of draws me back to my engineering days was having um, intelligent systems assist in the engineering process and help you do things more efficiently, help you avoid making stupid mistakes. Um, and um, that was possible 20, 25 years ago. I think AI just sort of takes it to the next level. Just there's more computing power, uh, more computing power um, available, um, and uh, the the pattern recognition uh, technology and principles are are better. But it's still you still have to make it work for your domain, and that's what Tastery seems to have been able to make work and has has some some uh, some very um, enthusiastic first customers and first partners are working with, which is um, always good, always a good indication of what's whether the tech is working or not. 
And, and Lori, are you seeing this kind of denotes the 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 sense that maybe uh, producers need to be more flexible, may, maybe need to come out with more wines and try different things. And, and do, do you see producers doing that, coming out with new labels, uh, more successful producers, or is there any relationship there? Do you see any trends there? Um, definitely more labels coming. I think the, from what I see on more like the marketing and packaging side, um, this part of tech um, you know, like it's part of leveraging tech is not so much announced to the consumers. Uh, right now, it's more like kept under wrap. Um, you know, like they're putting like it's now more and more common to see on the labels like, hey, we are like a B corporation or we are like biodynamic or like, you know, like all this like uh, vegan or sulfate free like things that consumers are searching for. I don't think necessarily we're there yet. We're just like, oh, this one was blended using artificial intelligence. And that would be pretty bold, but like, like you know, like it's just so. I think um, again, like in 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 a strange way, um, we don't even know like some of the bottle shots we do. Like I recognize some of the clients that we share with Tasty, so we have, you know, we have most likely done images for some of those wine, but it's not advertised or announced yet. So it's it's pretty much like kept under wrap, um, and I don't think it's necessarily a, like a bad thing. Uh, it's just like still, you know, this idea of like wine being this you know like the chef in the kitchen kind of thing like that like the winemaker like like one the storytelling is something that's uh more readily um embraced and inspiring maybe um but it may, maybe it can change right like it's just um yeah that's, that's where i'm coming from on that side of the business and, and, and um and Seb, Seb, when, when you're talking to producers and you're you're trying to help them sell more wine you're 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 advising them on, on, on getting more sales, getting more sales online. Are you, uh, you know, is there a suggestion to go with their best sellers and to push those or is there, are you encouraging, or are you seeing value in innovating and finding new wines, new labels, new tastes? Look, it's a, it's a very, I think it's, I mean, same as female in tech. It's another very fascinating topic, right? Deep, deep, deep tech here. Uh, and I would suggest there's a big question mark around the applicability of AI in the world of wine, right? We are talking about a highly subjective product. Uh, we are talking about an experience in your mouth, an experience when you're visiting, an experience at a restaurant. Um, and I would question, I would definitely question, I'd leave that on the table, how much is a piece of AI or an algorithm that will chemically compare wines? How much is that going to help me as a consumer discover something I would have never tried that I'm just going to go, oh my God, right? Um, so there's a question there. With the winemaking tactics, I also think there's a creativity side of making wine uh, that, look, we can engineer mass production wine to taste a certain way. We can, we can already do that without AI, right? Uh, we're capable of kind of a, we call it a bit of a soup in the industry. Um, but ultimately, there's a question mark as to whether you want a piece of code to tell you how to make your wine taste. As a winemaker, I'm not sure. Where I do think there's a strong applicability of AI, and that's where, I mean, Trolley, we're, we're, we are doing that today, is where it comes to optimizing the, uh, the channel mix, right? 
so we are capable of identifying which kind of channels are going to take what kind of wines, right? Restaurants versus, versus apps versus consumers, which are a bit more price driven consumers, which are quick bar versus long tail. Uh, and also on the logistics front, right? Moving wine. Uh, I mean, it's a heavy good. You don't want to move it three, four, five, six different times. You, want to, you don't want to go through too many warehouses. Uh, and so trying to optimize logistics is probably one area uh, where AI is going to push through. Uh, but as I was saying, overall, I think from a winemaking and a creativity uh, point of view, there's a bit of a challenge with AI. And from a matching versus, you know, the subjectivity of the product versus I'm walking into a winery and very unusually, I'm going to say, yeah, I don't, I don't drink that varietal, right? I'll just try it as a consumer, even if it's not the kind of bottle I would normally buy. Um, so look, I don't think it's a clear cut, clear cut uh, slam dunk. And just to close that off, I also don't think this is a female kind of a topic, right? There's an enormous number of AI tech startups trying to crack the world of wine and the taste matching and the preferences matching and the chemical measuring and all of that. I'm not seeing anything new. Um, but I am appreciating that ultimately whatever information we can analyze and give back to the industry as to what kind of consumers are buying, what kind of wines, what kind of wines do you need to make to get into a certain market? Any kind of information would be good to make decisions. I, don't, I think, look, we're probably another 50 to 100 years away before we have a piece of AI to design a wine from scratch, right? From growing the grapes to actually making the wine to actually selling it. Um, there was another startup in the news uh, recently out of Auckland, New Zealand called Cropsy um, as a bunch of um, Auckland tech engineers led by Lila Delikovic. Um, and um, they are um, able to count the bunches of grapes on wines and detect disease and pest problems to minimize crop uh, loss and yield estimates. Well, there's a lot, it seems like, of you know, uh, emerging wine tech also in the field. Uh, Nick, you have looked into this a little bit um, and you have um, some thoughts. But again, again, I just happen to um, uh, know of another business called Saturnalia. So they're part of an aerospace business in Italy and they started playing around with their tech to try and figure out whether they could um, understand based on um, their satellite imagery and the canopy uh, in, in one vineyard versus another, uh, the qualitative um, level of a particular wine in a particular year at a given point in time. Um, I think that's I think that's quite interesting, potentially uh, increasingly interesting, I think, as they go forward, because they are using AI to compare results from previous years with the um, imagery that they are then taking in the current year. So I think you know, whereas I was a little bit skeptical when they first started um, back, I think, in the 2015 vintage, um, I think that as they roll forward and as they compare more and more data through through their AI um, engine, then I think it's then I think it's going to become increasingly interesting, increasingly helpful in terms of understanding qualitative levels and potential um, producers who have done particular who has have the potential have the potential to do well in, they can clearly still screw it up in the cellar, right? In the, in the, in the shape. Um, 
but also it kind of reminded me of um, a period when I was um, working for a large um, publishing business and um, um, a lot of um, data was starting to be used by farmers, livestock farmers in particular in those days to ensure that they could control disease and make sure that their animals were kept in, in good conditions based on things like weather patterns and forecasts and, and, and pressure and humidity levels and all that sort of stuff. So, so I think all of this and this um, startup in New Zealand sounds extremely interesting. And I can see how a number of technologies based on things like satellites and based on health of plants and based on diseases and that kind of stuff could be used extremely positively to help um, manage yields from one vintage to the to the next, and to achieve a a um, more consistent level of of of, of quality. Um, you know, I'm, I I I I think of Chateau du Fort Vivants, um, uh, and maybe to a, to a lesser extent Chateau Palmer in 2018 in the Bordeaux vintage, where there was you know it was an extraordinarily warm and wet May. I mean there was there was surface water lying around everywhere. And they were two biodynamic um, producers and mildew just swept through their vineyards. They lost 90% of, of, of their, um, well, sorry, let's put it this way. They were, they didn't actually, they lost about 75% of their crop. So they were down from about 40 hectoliters per hectare to about 11 um, in, in both instances. So for, for Dufour Vivance, which is a pretty big estate, they made five equivalent of, of uh, 583 full cases. Um, so, so clearly this tech can be massively helpful, particularly as uh, we're all much more, much more sensitive to how um, uh, vineyards are managed um, to make sure that the right decisions are made at the right time. Um I would also uh, chime in on that. I think the like going back to the cropsy the cropsy example. Um, I think this is an, another illustration of like where of of how uh, how AI helps solve a problem that was only partially solvable before, but it it makes it economical to do. So like um, there's two parts I think that they had to solve to make cropsy work. One is of course AI. So being able to because I mean, you could have always gone out to the field, taken a picture, and sent the picture to a horticulturalist to tell you what's up with your, with your, with your vines. Um, the AI just makes it more efficient, um, but it still takes time to walk through the field and take pictures. So they had to build an additional piece of tech to attach to the tractor, so that now they're able just to drive the tractor through the field, and they have somebody. I mean, they're the equivalent to lasso, you know, pulling a hundred horticulturalists to process all of the images all at once and find nuances or issues in their vines that they might not have detected until much, much later when the issues are much, much bigger. And so I think that, I think that's where some of the AI, like the AIs that where they're, they're solving existing problems that are really dropping the economic or, or improving the economics of, of some of these, of some of these, uh, um, tasks it's just like the satellite like how how difficult is it to get that much data in in that 
much time and well you have some some devices a bit higher up in the atmosphere and they can do it a lot more efficiently than than flying planes all over the place to to try and get that or drones or what have you so i think those those are really really yeah yeah cool cool tech and it's also it's also where ai is truly um creating a bit of a, a leveled field by aggregating so much data by reading so much patterns and trends across the world and being able to inform the production process right for sure the question is really when we turn around and want to try and have ai to sell wine or ai to define <clears throat> what kind of wine are you going to make to maximize your dollar revenue and what kind of wine is a consumer going to buy next um that's yeah i think that's a whole different ball game a whole different ball game and this is not just wine specific by the way uh, this is food specific. This is craft specific. It's um, it's uh, it's far broader than just wine. Think about craft brews. Think about um, um, craft dis um, spirits as well. Um, so uh, this week, Russia um, is now requiring champagne producers from France to <laughs> label their their champagne sparkling wine in Russia and allowing sparkling wine producers in Russia to use the word champanowski, champanowski, badly pronounced. Um, Laurie, uh, being our resident French um, expert, how insulting could you get a more, do a more insulting thing? How insulting is this? And what kind of pain in the ass is this for, for labeling? And just, and yeah. just for argument saying, can we just clarify how long ago did Laurie leave France? Okay, I leave France like 15 years ago, but you know, I'm still there have a French go. passport. My sister was born in Champagne. Uh, like, so, you know, I still have ties. I still have ties uh, for sure. Um, it's definitely, I mean, when you touch wine in France, it's almost as important as soccer. Religious. Like, like, you know, it's pretty high. Um, and Champagne, a bit like Bordeaux and Burgundy, like they are like a, a crown jewel. Like they're just like some things that's just take a lot of, of pride that we're not for. It's, um, and you know, it's Russia as well. So it's not like the best political, like, you know, landscape and scenarios. So there's also like all like this extra layer on top. Um, yeah, it's been really making the news and make people like, like completely like scandalized like French people can do very well um but it is it is fascinating I was looking a bit at the history uh for this and Champagne was one of the first um appellation uh protected and it dates back from 1843 so like the appellation like Champagne um it's just like something that even back then knew they had to protect um and um yeah, and it's just it's just like, like fascinating to me. And just to give some context a little bit uh, to, to show, like what's interesting is it's only 2 million bottles of French champagne, which, you know, for the sake of argument, I still call like that's champagne, the actual one. Uh, 2 million bottles that is being exported and sold um, to Russia, which makes it the 15th market. So it's not like a ton, um, but it is high value. Like it's, you know, rich Russian um, people that uh, buy and purchase um, this product. And just to, I can't pronounce the, the, the Russian version, the, the one that they make in Russia, which apparently really doesn't follow at all the same fermentation method or anything like that. They produce 220 million bottles of it. 
And of course, the price point is incredibly different. Uh, usually it's about like three euros a bottle, from, you know, like on average. And um, I mean, I wish, uh, no, 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 I don't wish that champagne uh, was three euros a bottle, but sometimes I wish it was a bit cheaper. But so it's really like, not even apple and oranges. Uh, so I can, I can see the confusion, but I like seeing the politics around it, like how like um, Moet and Chandon and like LVMH, they're just like trying to deal because then, and then the French uh, foreign minister is like going in, like, you know, like there's a lot of political on top. Just the fact that even Vladimir Putin, you know, himself with flags like made the announcement like it's just i think to me like it's like oh like it's also like one of these other things where wine is used as a political you know tool um yeah i like uh, yeah it, it, it makes me laugh a little bit um but i, I can't imagine like it, it must be a bit heartbreaking for like champagne producer because they they're also experiencing a lot right now with climate change and look, we're also we're talking about a a, a much broader topic of appellation good or bad right uh, we now have wines being sold <clears throat> excuse me in china wines being grown in china but being produced under french guidance and french winemakers and sometimes even the juice goes to france and goes back to china and it's labeled as classic bordeaux french wines is that right or is that wrong? <clears throat> so I think, look, ultimately, okay. it's, it's the concept of appellation is really going down to the subjective nature of the product. And we want to try and help consumers realize this comes from this area, this is how it is, or not, right? Same as using varietals as a wine name that most of the world does, except for France, right? Or France. Italy or the, the old world. I will always remember, so I moved uh, to Canada in 2006 and I started designing wine labels for the Okanagan, the, the wine region here in British Columbia. And, um, and I, you know, the first time I go back to France, like, you know, family, family food, uh, you know, and my uncle is like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm designing wine labels. It's super fun. Um, and they like, oh, can you show me? And, you know, I showed like, and especially because like we use varietal and then you use this varietal in French, like, and I showed him like a Pinot Noir label that I designed. I was like, whoa, it's Pinot Noir. Like that can't, that can't be in Canada. I'm like, well, it's, it's the name of the great, like, like, like right there. Like, and it was just kind of like very interesting. Like it was, because of course, France has no idea that Canada does wine, um, but it's just like, and it does Pinot Noir written in, like, I just remember like the, like amazement, not in a good way, of a French bird, like, like it was just fascinating uh, that way too. Like things we take for granted, um, you know, but it's just like, it's not there. Like he was really aghast by it. And just like, I mean, my uncle has other yeah. issues, but like there was just like the, like his, his immediate perception of it was just like fascinating to watch, observe. Jonathan, so, you, Bottle Books has created a standard data set um, for wines. And one of these things is appellations. What, how difficult it is, is it to, balance all of these political uh i want to hear appellation yes or no good or bad um i think it's just i think it's just fact (laughs) it's the way it's the way the industry it's the way the industry works and classifies the wine and organizes it and um it is um it's difficult because it's also a moving target so um i think that's one of the challenges that traditional systems have is that they 
that these that, that they need some uh, stability and Appalachians. Yes, they're not all changing all the time, but there's enough change out there. Um, I mean, one of the most frequently changing regions is Austria, that every two or three years, there is a new reformulation of the DACs there. Um, or, uh, yeah, and, um, and so if you have a data, if you have a system where you're saying, well, give me all of the wines with this DAC, well, that DAC was valid from 2013 to 2015. It didn't change in 2016. It's the exact same bottle of wine from the exact same property. Nothing changed except it's no longer that region. So how do you how do you classify that? And it is an interesting uh, challenge to overcome. Um, and uh, and yeah, it, it keeps you on your toes. But I think I think going maybe one step further on this is like going back to the the champagne is the. Um, before tech, before Vivino, before Pinterest, before Instagram, um, let's say that that uh, the champagne houses go ahead and actually put sparkling wine on their labels and remove champagne. Uh, 20 years ago, nobody would have known that. Only people living in Russia buying the wine in Russia would know that. But now somebody using Vivino snaps a picture of one of these snap of one of these bottles or it goes up on Instagram, all of a sudden the rest of the world thinks that LVMH makes sparkling wine. And it, so it, it does have potentially international, uh, like it, it, it can have a, an impact on the brand outside of Russia as well due to, yeah, due to, due to the internet uh, perhaps, which is, is, is very, it adds a new dimension to those discussions, I guess. It's look, we're living in an increasingly globalized world, right? Uh, and that exact topic is gonna keep on happening. New countries are gonna try and come up with different ways of, of differentiating their products. You're looking at New Zealand wool, you're looking at alpaca, for instance, they have the same kind of a patterns they're doing. And given that we're increasingly globalized, right? 50 years ago, having a French wine for dinner was, oh my God, that's, that's wow. Today, having a French wine for dinner, I mean, it's just every day, right? I mean, every two days. Um, <laughs> and so data and goods are flowing in a way that is creating uh, an enormous amount of confusion. So yeah, perhaps the Appalachians are good to just remind the consumers where it's coming from. It's for sure that's going to be a, a thorn in, in, in the arse of France, right, and Champagne. But I don't think we should get ourselves. It's going to keep happening. You're going to see China, you're going to see India coming up with different ways and different labels, and it's going to piss the rest of the world off. We should adapt to it. We should really make sure that um, we deal with it, as opposed to um, uh, as opposed to trying to prevent it. I think same as crap. I'm just going to broaden the topic widely. Same as global multinational corporate taxations, you're now seeing countries starting to talk to each other in order to appropriately tax large corporations based on where their consumer are and where they make money not necessarily where they're established. 
So all of the countries getting along with each other and say, yeah, saying, yes, we're going to call this champagne. No, we're not going to call this champagne. That's the same kind of a broader macro level kind of a topic. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of pre- there is a bit of um, previous on this. I don't know if you, some of you remember Yves Saint Laurent producing a perfume called Champagne, which was um, ruled as as inadmissible by the courts. I think the you know the great news here, um, uh, as uh, Laurie mentioned, is that we are talking about minuscule quantities of of exports. Um, I totally agree with Jonathan that protecting the integrity of the brand is probably pretty important. And if you're sitting at LVMH headquarters, it's really, really important. In fact, it's paramount. Um, So it's very easy, you know, it's very easy for them to just withdraw what they have or stop supplying into the Russian market. And the fact that, you know, a bit like, I don't know, Cuban cigars in the United States, aren't available directly it'll suddenly make it all the more um sought after and um and exciting for um for russians i've no idea i've no idea why why he particularly chose this sort of um sort of oh yeah it's political it's got to be political. tiny little sort of this tiny little sort of battleground sort of equivalent to sort of hamlet act for scene for but anyway we'll, we'll have to sort of figure out why i guess in due course yeah. Well, that was it for episode 12 of the Wine Tech Insiders podcast. We covered a few new startups, female founders, and Champagne, Champagne, Russian, uh, <laughs> French foreign relations. We all need to pronounce it by next week. I will try. I need some Russian lessons. Shapowski. 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 At least, you know, maybe it's going to inspire more people to learn Russian. Um, your insiders yeah. <laughs> are Lori from Outshinery, Nick from Wine Owners, Jonathan from Bottle Books, and Seb from Trolley. See you all again in a few weeks. See you later, guys. See you next Everyone. time. Good seeing you.